Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about men's health issues with Dr. Thomas Martin. Dr. Martin is a clinician in urology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Susan Higgins. So, uh, Dr. Martin, thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking about men's health issues with you. We have a campaign that I think some people know about, but I'd really like to have you fill us in on what Movember is. So, Movember's a, a campaign that was started in Australia, actually, about 10 years or so ago, and and Mo is the Australian colloquial colloquial term for mustache. And it started with a couple guys who were interested in advancing uh, and raising awareness of men's health issues. And so it's kind of something that's that's uh, snowballed the, uh, internationally at this point, certainly has a big presence here in the United States. And again, t- towards those ideas of raising awareness, um, both in a small way with individual men and in a systemic way with, with uh, uh, large groups of the importance of men's health. And so there's, a, I guess, a, a mustache movement that goes with this um, so that people actually will be aware of what's going on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So that's exactly the point is that the, uh, the, uh, the participants grow a mustache, and it, it kind of has the, the effect almost of the pink ribbon that, that you see in breast cancer awareness. And the idea is to kind of provoke uh, uh, people to ask the question, what's that all about? And then to give, uh, you know, to be able to, to give an explanation and raise awareness just on a little small way in individual people that you meet, what the campaign is actually about. And so this campaign is really, I, I mean, a lot of people know about prostate cancer. That's one of the main things that, of course, you clinically uh, focus on. But it's it's got a broad scope, right? It's all about men's health and awareness of multiple issues. It is. It's it's not just prostate cancer, and it's it, it sometimes can be pigeonholed that way. And yet men's health is a much broader uh, uh, area in the sense that it involves just general prostate health. A lot of men as they age will have enlargement of the prostate issues, um, which can provoke a variety of urinary symptoms. Um, testicular cancer, uh, it can uh, certainly covers uh, uh, testosterone uh, issues, which affect men as they age, and also has taken on an interest in mental health issues. Uh, some of the uh, depression, suicide issues, which affect men uh, to a great degree as well. So this is great because I think that um, these are topics that are sort of lurking in the back of the mind of a lot of men that go to their physician. And part of it sounds like part of what this is doing is opening that dialogue. Well, that's exactly it. You see, you know, when you look at, at how men access health care, um, there's a, 
most men through their teens, while they're still being cared for by their pediatrician, uh, have they tend to access health care through their parents. And as they reach adulthood, there's a big drop-off in, in the, the willingness and uh, of men to, to reach out to the healthcare profession. And yet there's a lot of issues that, that arise in those years. And so there's this this kind of plummeting of of how men access healthcare through the 50s at which point in time oftentimes their wives drive them to to seek care and uh and the idea is to to kind of bring these issues to the forefront because men in general and this is a little stereotypical but when faced with the choice will avoid healthcare and we want to make sure they know that it's an issue that uh if they are experiencing problems that they need to be plugged in about so it's interesting that you mentioned this issue of the health care and uh, the age dependence. Women have a, gynecologic oncologi- a gynecologist that they see on a regular basis, and they're plugged into that throughout their 40s and 50s and into their 60s, whereas men don't have that structure in their health care. So this is a great way to get the word out and to get them to their physician. And then when they come to the office, how do you approach these issues with the patient in the office? Well, there's a, a variety of different ways. And in, in some instances, when patients come in, you have to let them go because oftentimes the issues will kind of bubble to the surface. Um, and if you give them an opportunity to tell you, mm-hmm. uh, they'll tell you if you give them a chance to talk and, and, and are willing to hear what they have to say. You know, so often you'll have a, a patient who will come in and have a kidney stone, say, and he gets to the end of an appointment and says, oh, doc, you know, what about this a sexual dysfunction problem or this urinary uh, issue that I have. And it was kind of lying there, but you just have to be receptive to the idea of hearing it. So there's that element of it. And then I think it's also the the, the public awareness on the part of, of the guys to know that those are issues that are worth talking about, not that they have to feel they have to kind of bottle up. And there are some uh, screening. Obviously, the PSA screening is something that um, I wonder what the compliance is with that, and how do you get people engaged in PSA screening? Well, and, and PSA is such a hard topic in the in the first place because th- there is such a wide um, uh, wide disparity in what you read about it in the popular media and and so on, and even what the government various government uh, panels put forth. Um, on the one hand, the way I usually explain it to my patients is is that you know it's very clear that on the one hand PSA is is a good test if you are interested as a patient in decreasing the likelihood of dying of prostate cancer. The, the trickier part for, for patients is, is understanding the, the downside of screening, um, which includes the false positive risks of screening where a test will suggest there's a problem and it turns out there isn't. Or also, in the case of prostate cancer, sometimes diagnosing cancers that maybe wouldn't threaten a patient. And so those balances are things you have to really have an informed discussion with the patients about and, and find out what they want to accomplish. Yeah, so we, I think, um, it, it, as clinicians, we think of urologists in terms of a lot of the procedures that they do. But I know, having treated prostate cancer patients, that when it comes to PSA and any issue of prostate cancer, there's so much gray that it actually takes a lot of time in the office to get people to understand those issues and work through them in their own mind so they can make a decision. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a very, uh, again, if you use the, the controversy just in, the, in the, the press as kind of the example of it, there's an awful lot to argue about. We argue about it. Um, and one of the things that we try to do is obviously uh, we, we want to make, obviously the ultimate goal would be to have a better test. 
But the other question is, are there ways to make the test that we have now, the PSA, itself better? How can we interpret it more wisely? A variety of different parameters there. How do we evaluate the the abnormalities better so that we avoid the false positives and that we also at the same time find the cancers that are really important to find? And so that's one of the things I think that that is where you'll see urology growing. Certainly where you see it growing at Yale is in in interpreting the PSA in in a wiser way. Right, because it's not just the number, but it's the velocity, how fast is it rising, and then putting that together with a clinical picture. And then, of course, sitting down and trying to explain the complexity of that to a patient. It actually takes quite a bit of time. It does, because there's such a variability in terms of all of those issues from patient to patient. And they all have a story where they'll come in and say, well, I have a friend who had had prostate cancer with a PSA of such and such, and mine is the same, and why is my situation different? Um, And it may be based on the nature of the tumor that they have or the age of the patient or a variety of other different factors. And uh, and so there it is. It's something that we have to kind of be very patient in terms of of walking each patient through that. And uh, it's a it's it's a it's a time consuming process that for sure, but it's a necessary one. Yeah, and I think we're doing this. Uh, a, we have a similar trend that we probably are a little ahead of the curve uh, with prostate cancer, but in breast cancer, we're always explaining how breast cancer has really many diseases. The more, some more aggressive, some less aggressive some more of a threat to your health and some less. And and so I think this is where prostate cancer is going now is how to sort it out with imaging, PSA, et cetera. Um, I don't know if you're involved with some of the imaging studies that are being done. Well, two, two things towards that. I mean, one of, one of them as far as the, the variety of treatments is that you know, there's a a large movement towards uh, active surveillance, which means monitoring, but not necessarily initially treating a cancer. And uh, again, that's something that to to patients sometimes is very uh, anxiety provoking. Um, And they'll say, well, I've got this cancer and we're just not treating it. And it seems uh, counterintuitive to them. Um, And it again is it, it takes a major educational effort to to help them kind of be comfortable with that if that's something that fits their needs as we educate them about it. The other question about the the imaging is both in terms of detection and in terms of treatment. Um, Preston Sprinkle is doing some really nice work in our department with MRI, both in terms of uh, using MRI to help make the PSA a better test and guiding biopsies better. But MRI also is useful in terms of planning treatment once a cancer is diagnosed, also useful in um, following patients who choose active surveillance. And so you're right, the ability to image and actually see the cancer, which is not something that we had that was really useful 10 years ago, um, is, is, a, is a place where, where prostate cancer care has changed so much. And you'll be... Uh, of course, struggling with the thing that we struggle with in breast cancer, which is the false positives, false negatives. And that's a whole other conversation that uh, you have with the patients. Um, There's some um, anxiety that goes with this testing and then interpretation of the results. And uh, that's a whole other sort of conversation that we have to have with patients a lot. You know, if you're going to undergo this test, you have to know that no test is perfect. There's no doubt that that the anxiety is one of the the things that critics of the PSA bring up, and uh, uh, and and it's something that we have to kind of work through with patients once they've embarked on the decision to be screened, is to say you're going to have to tolerate some degree of anxiety. 
the the interesting thing is is that with guys especially uh, with men they oftentimes are are willing to kind of bottle that up and not be tested just to kind of not worry about it and then you know the question always is 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 the anxiety of being screened uh, in fact a heck of a lot less of a bother than the anxiety of dealing with a big problem that blows up for for lack of being screened at a later date and and you have to kind of try to walk patients through both both sides of that story yeah we uh we see this in the breast cancer world because people are actually and i just had this conversation with a patient the other day you know when they're when they're thinking about mastectomy they're actually making uh these choices based in part on the anxiety that will come in days and years to come with biopsies and surveillance. So we have a little bit of a double-edged sword with the surveillance, um, and we're all dealing with that. It's, exa- it's one of the things that when you have a patient who has a biopsy that comes back positive that you have to counsel them about is to say, you know, if, if you're inclined to be uh, monitored, is that there, there is this kind of worry that's going to go along with it, and you have to be prepared for that. And some patients will find, and it's, a, it's, it's difficult in advance to tell them about the, the, the worries of treatment as well because they haven't gone through the side effects or things of that sort. But in some instances, you have to kind of try to predict the future for them to a little bit of a degree so that they can kind of do the compare and contrast when they make their decision as to how they're going to proceed. So it's, it's a difficult project at times. Yeah, and I think this is the art and science, right? There's the, um, as a clinician, uh, knowing how to present the issue so that it's helpful, but not so fear-inducing that people don't come back and get screened because I think this is something we're really seeing that the anxiety is another symptom to manage, and it really does uh, affect someone's health care. And that's, I think, one of the, the benefits of this campaign is to, is to I, I think men operate sometimes in the, in the realm of, of that, that the problems that they're experiencing are that they're the only ones who have the problem. And this is something, uh, this campaign is something that lets them know that there's a whole world of guys out there that have the same problems. You're not the only guy, and we can walk you through it, and you'll be walking with guys who've got the same issue. Well, that's great. Um, I can't wait to talk a little bit, speak with you a little bit more about this Movember campaign. Um, But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about Movember and the new advances in prostate cancer diagnosis and care with Dr. Thomas Martin. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins along with Dr. Thomas Martin. He's our guest tonight, and we're talking about recent advances in prostate cancer diagnosis and care. And in particular, we're focusing on the Movember campaign. We just discussed how this Movember campaign can really help open a dialogue between the physician and their doctor on an individual basis, but it really uh, also opens the dialogue on a bigger stage and allows men now to get together and advocate for themselves, for funding, and, um, you know, sort of on a more global level. Maybe you can talk about how, what the history of men's ad- advocacy for their health issues has been and how that's changing. Well, the history hasn't been great in, in, in reality in terms of men's willingness to advocate for themselves. It was a big deal, if you remember uh, Senator Dole years ago kind of bringing out his prostate cancer treatment, and that kind of raised a little bit of awareness. But men as a group haven't done you know, a, great, a great job at this. And if you've watched an NFL game this month and you see the guys all wearing the pink gloves and uh, the equipment with the pink and so on in honor of breast cancer awareness, and it's you realize how women have done such a great job advocating for themselves. And what it also emphasizes in comparison is how poor a job the guys have done. And, uh, uh, you know, the things that are, are so notable is that, you know, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, has over 130 mentions of women's health issues in it and two about men's health. Um, funding as far as, as uh, women's cancer outstrips men's cancer funding uh, research uh, by a factor of 15 or more. And so, you know, it, the, part of the idea of this campaign is, to, is that through awareness and through men's willingness to kind of speak up and advocate for themselves, that, that these things begin to turn around. But, it, but it, it, again, guys being less willing to kind of speak up about these issues, they hold them a little closer. Um, that's, this is, that's what this is important for. Well, I see the uh, the correlate in the in the women's sort of health community in that I treat gynecologic cancers, and some of this I think is is human nature for men and women. If it if it's below the belt, we don't talk about it. It's private, um, and so when we think about urology, people their minds automatically go to sexuality and intimacy and erectile dysfunction and all of these things that. Even though we have the people in the bathtub on the Cialis commercial, <laughs> people still don't want to talk about it. And, and that's the idea. And I, I have a patient who uh, is actually a pastor here in, uh, in New Haven who talks with the men in his parish about it and says that, you know, there are more things to being a man than just that part of it. And you have to put them in the perspective of saying part of being a man is taking care of yourself so you can take care of others and so on. And that there's help for those other more personal issues that go along, but you have to keep yourself alive and healthy um, in order to do those other things. And uh, and it's an effective message that he that he uses. And um, and uh, so I think those are the kind of things that we try, kind of on a, a bigger level, to emphasize to the guys to 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 get out there and be advocates for each other and 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 for those uh, issues as a whole. Yeah, and I think this whole uh, putting it in the context of men's health helps people, right? It's not just uh, prostate health. Um, there are some other issues. I think um, it's more of an encompassing topic that you can engage the patient in. And I think there are other things like low testosterone, um, and we talked a little bit about testicular cancer. Um, these are important health issues that also go into this Movember campaign concept, right? That's right. Um, uh, low testosterone is a, is an issue that uh, affects nearly every man as they age. Your testosterone will 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 
pretty steadily in, in almost every case decline as you as you aged in different at different rates for different men, but it can provoke a variety of symptoms, sexual dysfunction uh, uh, being one that perhaps the guys notice the most. But there's a bunch of other things, muscle mass, energy level, uh, uh, things of that sort, which also can be affected. And so, you know, awareness of those things, uh, we think, helps get the guys uh, kind of the, the, the gumption to get up and get those things checked out. And what about testicular cancer? I mean, people, I think, are still in the dark about that issue. Um, and I, I wonder what, what people are doing now with screening and do they encourage self-exam? What's, what's, what's the current state-of-the-art uh, management? Well, it, it is definitely something in, in, in this campaign that, that we would try to emphasize because, again, it fits that population of guys where they start to fall out of the healthcare system for a period of time based on their age. It's after they leave their, their pediatricians and before they maybe hook up with a family doctor when they're in their 40s, that's when testicular cancer has its highest incidence. And so campaigns like, like Movember, which have tried to be kind of a little bit aimed at the younger guys. Um, it's where it's where sometimes you see their uh, emphasis being, and, and it really strikes home for those guys, or it really has its potential greatest impact on those guys because they're in a spot in the healthcare system that's a bit of a gap for them. And so if they're aware of it and checking themselves periodically and can receive information about how to do that, uh, it's an important it's an important step. Yeah, and, and uh, especially in regard to testicular cancer, it's highly curable, especially at an early stage. And I think it's a an issue that a lot of men aren't aware of, catching it early, treating it early, um, very well-tolerated treatments that are really very effective. Right. It's it's such a treatable and, in fact, such a highly curable disease. And it was, it was one of the things that, obviously, Lance Armstrong pointed out, all the issues otherwise aside in terms of the competitive things. Um, that he's been accused of. But, you know, this guy had testicular cancer in a pretty bad way and is living a life that's a high-quality, achieving life um, and and did so because he was very well-treated and had the problem found and dealt with it. And uh, and uh, and that's, I think, is a, is, a, is a good example for people to know about, all the other kind of scandalous things aside, is that here's a guy who's healthy and well because he, he, he got on the problem and took care of it at a young age. Well, and he even, uh, my understanding was he even had relatively advanced disease. Had very advanced disease. So it was a very, really a, a real success story in terms of his cancer treatment. It, it's, it's testicular cancer in a lot of ways is really kind of one of the, the, the miracles of, of modern oncology in the sense that patients who have disease as advanced as he had it are cured. And, uh, and so it's something that, that we don't want guys to be afraid of, that it's initially a, they, their first instinct is it's a death sentence. It's, and it need not be. And when someone as famous as Lance Armstrong or some other celebrity steps up to the plate and, and talks about something as personal as that, I mean, it seems like that was a real turning corner for testicular cancer in terms of its global awareness, or at least in the United States. No doubt. It's, 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 it's helpful to see um, uh, someone step up there and show that, and be willing to share the fact that they've, they've, they've had a, a problem that can be a sensitive one, obviously, and they've confronted it in a public way, which kind of takes away some of the the sensitivity issues away. Um, and it's it's a enormous help, I think, in terms of how the the average person might look at it. Yeah, and again, the Movember campaign, hopefully we'll be getting people in to talk with the, their doctors about this. I just did want to talk about the fact that you're going to be part of the lecture series 
um, that Yale New Haven Health is sponsoring, and you'll be discussing on November 16th advances in prostate cancer uh, diagnosis, diagnosis and care. And you have some other, um, there are four in, in four talks uh, by Dr. Honig, Dr. Hess, and uh, Dr. Walker. We'll all be discussing uh, various various topics, and that will, I believe, be held at the hospital, correct? No, they're, they're throughout New Haven County. Oh, they're throughout New Haven. Um, I see. As, as, actually, as far out as, as Old Saybrook and uh, Hamden, New Haven, uh, uh, and so around, uh, around the entire area. So they'll be basically going over all of these issues uh, that men want to know about, and I see one of them is called Everything men want to know about male urology, but we're afraid to ask. And again, I think that sums it up. <laughs> that's the best way to. Oh, that's almost the uh, summary statement for for our uh, discussion because a lot of this is is starting the dialogue. Now, what about people who are outside of the system? You talk about this gap. How can we how can we get men engaged with their doctors? Um, do the primary care doctors need to? Refer them. How do, how do we get them engaged with you? Well, I think it, there, it a little depends on. There's a variety of different ways to access the the system. I mean, there the hospital has been very generous over the years in terms of doing free screenings for a variety of different things. And I think if you keep your ear to the ground, you can very readily become aware of those things. I think you have to. Uh, again, I think some of it comes from patient initiative. You have to be kind of a little willing to step up to your, your primary doctor or, uh, or a urologist if you have one and, and identify the problem. I think we have to make sure we do a good job listening when patients are kind of trying to to, to give us a hint that something's going on. Um, and so I think it's, it's we've all have to do a job. I think the, the, it's, a, it's incumbent on us to be welcoming the, in terms of the discussion. And, and again, hopefully efforts like this on a big scale do a good job communicating to patients that we're were ready to listen to what they have to say. Now, I'm just curious, how many of the primary care people are actively engaged in doing prostate uh, PSA screening? Is that something that's kind of been in their, like, their domain and you're kind of... Well, it's it's struggling it, with how you divide that it, it responsibility is, it's a, up. It, it's a, most of our patients who who we evaluate for for instance for PSA screening issues, PSA especially, um, are, are come to us from their primary doctors, um, and I think that it's a difficult problem for the primary doctors because it's such a complex issue, and yet in a course of a yearly physical, you've got a limited amount of time. And we've talked about PSA now for 15 minutes. And in the same time, a primary care doctor has to talk to you about your cholesterol and your heart disease and every, every other thing. So it's, a, it's, it's difficult for them. And so I think in a lot of instances, it's, it's something that we want them to be able to address the primary care doctors with, with patients. But we also want patients to know that it's something, hey, I can at least ask about this. And if I'm not being screened, why? And 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 if I am being screened, is it something I really want to do? Um, and so it's got to be a, a little bit of a two-way street in the sense that that uh, uh, both parties have to kind of be plugged into the game a little bit. Now, I imagine when they get plugged into this, let's say they come to you with a slightly elevated PSA. Um, it sounds like if you're able to open up the conversation, they'll start talking about things that I think for many men are even more personal, like erectile dysfunction. Um, I would imagine that's not the necessarily the first thing that comes up, but you get to that after maybe going through some levels of other health care issues. And maybe you can talk about how how does that get discussed and, and what types of therapies do you have for that? 
So it, it as, as you're right, it oftentimes comes up in the context of a, of a bigger discussion, and, and hopefully you've developed enough of a rapport with patients as you speak with them that they feel comfortable bringing it up. And then in terms of evaluating it, uh, it's, it's a it's a pretty uh, intensive evaluation in the sense that it involves talking about the history and what's involved in terms of the actual symptoms. It involves looking at the patient's history of other problems. Diabetes, heart disease, uh, uh, neurologic conditions all have an impact on, on erectile function. And so each of those kind of has to be considered. We have to look at things like a good physical exam that, for, that may provide clues as to why a patient has uh, uh, erectile problems. And then there's oftentimes a series of some laboratory work that has to be considered. And the treatments are very far flung, um, and they can range from the things that that uh, your audience knows well from just watching, again, those NFL games and all the commercials that come on during, during the games or the evening news um, in terms of the pills to treatments that are a little bit more sophisticated in terms of medications that can be given by routes that are different than pills to ultimately surgical treatments. Um, and so there's a big spectrum. Um, but again, it's a process. You have to walk the patients through it in terms of understanding what they want to accomplish. And uh, obviously, it sounds like partnering with their primary care doctor to address, it sounds like all these other con- what we call comorbidities is an important part of that. Absolutely. It's it's uh, the guy who comes in to see you and has erectile problems, but you know, really poorly controlled hypertension or an elevated cholesterol or things of that sort you know, as a guy that we've got to pay attention to and, and and actively enlist the primary care physicians to help us with. And uh, and so, yeah, it's definitely a, a team game to a, to a significant degree. And I think one of the things that we as Americans are always walking around with but we don't want to think about is, is vascular disease, and that's a big part of this. So um, it's, it's really the total health means total body care. It does. It, it, it's, we try to be aware, especially in, the, in some of the patients who come in without diagnoses of coronary disease, heart disease, uh, or vascular disease, that their erectile dysfunction may well be a tip-off, that there's some other maybe bigger problem. And so we have to do a good job being aware of that and make the appropriate uh, referral for evaluation of that. Dr. Thomas Martin is a clinician in urology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.